It's been quite a privilege to come and sit under Jeff's teaching here at church. And what a privilege to be able to, to lead you this morning in the study of God's Word. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, would you please quiet our hearts and still our spirit and help us to hear what you'd have to say to us today. Help us to be still and simply to know that you're God. And would you do a work within us this morning, Father, that goes far beyond these walls and extends out into our life in this coming week. I pray that what you do in our hearts will affect our families, not only our relationship to you, but, Father, our relationship to the world around us and people we dwell with. So, Lord, please use this time. Use it to your glory and to our growth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start by reading the uh, first four verses of that chapter again we just read. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and about 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel, the two maids, and he put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. There comes a time in life where it's time to come home. And sometimes what we come home to is not something that's very pleasant because we've made a mess of things before we left. When I was in the third grade, my dad used to always check our homework. We'd finish our homework at night, give it to mom and dad, and they would check it. By the time we went back and corrected it then and took it to school... We always made 100 on homework, which helps your grade tremendously. But my dad loved bowling. That's where I get my love of bowling from. And one night they had a bowling banquet. His team had won the league that year. And when he came home from the banquet, I gave him my homework, and he stood there, and he, he couldn't hold it up, and he couldn't focus his eyes on my homework. Been drinking too much. That continued the next few days and the next few weeks and months and years. Uh, we moved up to Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, near Chattanooga. Dad worked in downtown Chattanooga, and he would drive up the mountain every night to come home. But he would stop at the liquor store in Chattanooga before he drove up the mountain. And by the time he got home, often he couldn't get out of the car. We'd have to help him out of the car. When I was in college, my parents had moved down to Chattanooga Valley, and uh, he, Dad came home uh, one night and ran into the garage door. Both sides of the car were scraped up, the mirrors were broken off, and we decided that something had to change because either Dad would be killed or kill somebody else on the highway. So we confronted him and got him to go to a rehab center for six weeks. And to my dad's credit, he never drank again after that time. But after six weeks in rehab, the time came to go home. How do you come home to a family that you've ignored for 12 years? All the hurt, the marital disputes, the fights. How do you come home and bring healing to that kind of thing? That's what Jacob faced. We've been studying his life for the last few months, and you remember the story. He was born with a twin brother, and he came out of the womb holding his brother's heel. He was named the supplanter, what Jacob means. When he was a young man, 
Esau came in from hunting one day and was just starving. Jacob was cooking, and he said, can I have some of your porridge? Jacob, sure, I'll give you some. If you'll sell me your birthright. And of course, his birthright meant he got double the inheritance of all the other children. Plus, he became head of the family when his father died. It's this big deal. But he said, what, what use is a birthright to me if I'm going to starve to death? So he sold his birthright for a cup of soup. The Bible says he despised his birthright. Later, his father, perhaps to overcome that, was going to give him the family blessing. And the blessing, if you remember, kind of put him in the position of leadership in the family. His father said, uh, why don't you go uh, find some game, kill it, come home and cook it. And while we eat, I'll give you the blessing. Well, while he was gone, his mother came to Jacob and said, while your brother's gone, let's make sure you get that blessing. So she fixed some game and they deceived Isaac. Jacob lied to his father, dressed up like his son, like, like Jacob, like Isaac's son. And Isaac gave the blessing to the wrong son. Isaac, uh, Esau came back and he was so furious, he decided that when his dad died, he would just kill Jacob. His mother got wind of it and decided that Jacob needed to leave home. So they sent him off to his uncle's house to find a wife. He went to Laban's house about 500 miles away, and while he was there, he met Rachel. Fell in love with Rachel. He went to Laban and said, can I, can I marry your daughter? And Laban said, well, if you work for me for seven years, I'll give you my daughter's hand. So he worked for seven years, and on the wedding night, Laban brought in his daughter. The next morning, I don't know why it took all night to realize, but the next morning he realized that wasn't Rachel. It was Leah, her sister. So he came to Laban and said, what, what have you done to me? I've worked seven years for you. And Laban said, well, our custom is that we can't marry off the young daughter first. We have to marry off the older daughter. So now that we've done that, you can have Rachel too, but you've got to work seven more years. So he did. At the end of seven more years, now he'd been away 14 years, he decides it's about time to go home. But Laban says, I've prospered really well since you've been here, so stay and work for me about six more years. And I'll, what, do you, what do you need for wages? They decided that what Jacob would get would be all the striped and spotted sheep or goats or lambs and what Laban would keep would be all the solid color, so they could just tell whose flock was whose. But Laban went out right quick that same day and took all the spotted sheep out of the flock and took them three days away. Cheated Jacob one more time. Jacob worked six more years. Became quite wealthy. So wealthy that Laban's children became jealous of him. That was their inheritance he was getting. God came to Jacob and said, it's time to go home. So, under cover of night almost, while Laban was three days away taking care of business, Jacob left. Leah went in and stole the household gods, took them with her. Laban came home, chased him almost all the way back to where he was from and caught up with him. And they they reached the truce where they put up a, a, a pile of rocks. 
And the way they settled their differences was Laban said, I won't cross those rocks to do you harm. And you promise you won't cross those rocks to do me harm. They agreed. They left. And now it was time for Jacob to go home. He had left with Esau scheming how to kill him. And when he sent word home that he was, he was on his way, he, his servants came back and said, he's coming to meet you with 400 men. Why would you bring 400 men with you? Unless it's an army and you're getting ready to kill somebody. So Jacob would come up with an idea of how to meet his brother. He, out of his herd, just to show you how wealthy he was, he gets 2,000 female sheep or 200 female sheep, 20 rams, 200 goats, 20 male goats, 30 camels, 40 cows, and he sends those ahead as a gift to his brother to try to buy back a relationship, to try to reconcile with his brother. And he sends him on in droves, bit by bit. And everyone that reaches Esau, the servant is to say, these are gifts from your brother Jacob. So he does that the day before he comes home. He spends the night, sends his family across the river, and he stays and wrestles with God all night that Jeff covered last week. Then he goes across the river, and he divides his family up so that he goes first. And then he had children by two, two of the servants. He puts them next for their children. Then Leah and her children next. And then uh, Rachel and, and Joseph very last. So he goes, has them. Then he has all of his possessions to divide up into two groups. So that if one gets attacked, the other can go free, that Jeff mentioned. With that in mind, he, he goes forward, not knowing what he's going to run into. And he, as he approaches... Esau, he bows down seven times as he gets close. What's Esau going to do? Esau runs up and throws his arms around his neck and starts weeping. You're home. My brother's home. He expected to meet anger, but instead when he got home, he found grace. Who would have thought? God had gone before him and changed Esau's heart. There was another young man in scripture that left home and it had to do with an inheritance as well. Jesus told the story. A young man came to his father and he said, dad, I'd like my inheritance. I don't want to wait till I'm old. I want it now so I can spend it while I'm young. And the dad took all that he had and divided it among his children and gave the son his inheritance. And the son went out, spent it all, wasted it. Prostitutes, reckless living. If there had been cars, he'd have bought fast cars. Spent it all until he had nothing left. And he was reduced to feeding pigs on a pig farm. One day as he was feeding the pigs, he was so hungry that he thought, if, if I could only eat what they're eating, I, I could be satisfied. And it dawned on him that his father's servants ate better than that. It was time to go home. 
But how do you go home to a dad that you have taken one-third of all that he had and wasted it? And a brother who stayed there and was patient and worked and kept the home going. How do you go home to when you've left such a mess like Jacob? He starts back and he, the only thing he can figure is he's not rich. He can't send herds and cattle and say, here's what I've done while I'm away. Would you accept me back? All I can do is come back and say, dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. Can I just be a servant, please? You can imagine what must have gone through his mind and heart as he's on the road back home. But if somebody came out to meet Jacob, somebody comes out to meet that son, and and an old man comes running down the road, and and it's his dad. And his dad throws his arms around him and says, my son is home. He was lost, now he's found. He was, he was dead and now he's alive. He encourages everybody to rejoice with him. And instead of the shame that the son expected, he finds grace. I don't know what your journey has been in life. But maybe there's a point, there's usually a time in our lives where we have to come home. Have to come home to God. I know there have been times when I've gone my own way. Run hard, run fast, go in a different direction. And one day God puts it up on your heart. Son, it's, it's time to come home. There are four questions I'd like to ask you to consider this morning. One is... Can you really return? Is it possible to return to God? Isaiah 55 says this. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. I like what he says. It's, let the wicked man forsake his ways, the actions he's doing. That he, he knows are wrong. I thought early in my Christian life when I was talking to somebody about the gospel, I had to convince them how bad they were. I know when I came to Christ, nobody had to convince me. I knew already. Most people know if they're apart from God. But it's not just forsaking the ways. It's turning from the thoughts that lead to the ways. What he's seeking is repentance from the inside out. A repentance of the whole person. Not just a theological understanding of the gospel, but a desire to be changed through and through. Forsake its ways. Let the unrighteous forsake its thoughts. And notice a promise after that. And he will have compassion on him and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. Not miserly, not begrudgingly, but abundantly pardon. That, that's the nature of our God. Will you return? If you do, how do you make peace with God when we've made such a mess of things? I remember I was playing piano in a little Baptist church when I was in high school, and the pastor stood up and he said, If Jesus were returned today, would you be ready? And, and I knew I, I wouldn't. All that I had done and all that I was was right in front of my face. And how do you set the record straight with God 
The truth of the gospel is that God has already done that. If you look in the book of Romans, chapter 5, Paul talks about it. In descriptive words that I think would help help us this morning, he says in verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Helpless. But Paul had learned, and he writes later in the book, that when he was confronted with the law of God and what God expected, he was helpless to do it. When the law said, thou shalt not covet, see, sin leapt to life in him, and he couldn't help but covet. It's like saying to you, don't think about elephants for the next 30 seconds. You think about elephants. So something in us that, that responds to God's holiness by thinking, I'm going to do it my way. We're helpless. I grew up with it, hearing the saying that God helps those who help themselves. But the passage says, God helps the helpless. When you don't have the ability, and you know you don't have the ability to do it God's way, God comes in with his strength. Two verses down in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners... Not only were we helpless, we were sinners. We had run as far and fast from God as we could at times. Blocked Him out of our life, done things our own way, used His resources the way we wanted to use them. And He said, well, one would hardly die for a righteous man. You know, if I knew that there was a man who was coming up with a cure for COVID, and he would save 100,000 lives this year, but he was in danger of dying, but I could die in this place? I might. (laughs) I might. But for a man who's sitting in prison, who's on death row for murder or for thievery, would I die for a sinner? No. No. But the Bible says, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Go figure And not only just a sinner, somebody that did something to somebody out there, he also described this in one other way in the uh, two verses down from there. He says in verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Enemies. We hadn't just offended other people or done something to somebody out there. We had offended God himself. Our lives had struck in the face of the God of truth. Our selfishness flew in the face of the God of love and compassion. We were enemies of God. But notice how he dealt with all three of those. Verse 6, while we were helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, reconciled to God through the death of his Son. While I was running the opposite direction, while we were helpless and unable, we weren't even on the road home yet. And God so loved us, He gave His Son to die. It's amazing grace. So, if you decide to come home to God and you know that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin, that you're, you can be reconciled, it's possible. Not by what you've done, but by what Christ has done. I like the, the, the hymn verse uh, from Rock of Ages. It says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. 
Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. We come empty-handed before God. And what kind of reception will we get? Is it possible that God will stand there and say, you want to come home? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Well, you can come home, but, <clears throat> but you, better watch, you better watch yourself when you come home. I spent half of my life thinking that God had saved me, but he was standing there waiting to watch me fall. And, and when I slipped up, he would say, yeah, I knew he was going to do that. And then I read Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you go back and look at the parable of the prodigal son I quoted a while ago, there are three parables Jesus tells in a row. The first is about a shepherd who goes in search of a lost sheep. And when he finds the sheep, he brings it home and he calls out his neighbors to come rejoice with him. And he says there is more rejoicing in heaven over one found sinner than 99 righteous. And then there's a parable about the woman who lost a coin. And when she finds the coin, she calls her neighbors to rejoice with her that she's found it. And he says again, there's rejoicing in heaven when something's found that was lost. And then there's a father who runs to find his son. And he throws a feast to welcome him home. If you come home to God, know that He rejoices. There is no, well, I can't believe you came back. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And whoever comes to me, I will in no wise wise cast out. The way to God is full and open. And God rejoices when we come home. So how do you respond to that? I like that the theme of the book of Romans is found in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation to all who, what? Believe. Romans, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by faith we are saved through grace. Faith. How, how do you come home to God? You trust Him. You believe. You believe that what he has done is sufficient to put you back in good standing with God. That the righteousness you have is what you're given through the righteousness of Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Faith is not just theological niceties and yes I believe the system of doctrine. It's trusting God with who you are. Back in 1859, and you may have heard the story, there was a, a tightrope walker from France called Blondine. Have you heard that story? <laughs> okay. He stretched a rope across Niagara Falls, and 10,000 people came out to watch him cross it. And he walked across it, and the crowd just cheered like crazy. And then he put rocks in a wheelbarrow, and he said, how many people think I can wheel this wheelbarrow full of rocks across this rope across Niagara Falls? Yeah, you can do it. Crowd went wild. He did it. He did it a couple of times until everybody was just in almost a frenzy. And then he said, how many of you think I can carry a person across this tightrope? Oh, they were just wild. Oh, yes, you can do that. And so he turned to someone from England, a count, and he said, how about you? Would you, would you get in the wheelbarrow? 
The man said, oh, no, no, no. It's one thing to believe that somebody can do something for you. It's another thing to trust them to do it. James says even the demons believe in God and tremble. But they don't trust him with their souls and their life for salvation. We have to trust and depend upon God alone to bring us home to be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, says in Acts, and you will be saved. Faith. Now, for some people, you may already be home, and the issue for you is not coming home. It's as you're home, how do you restore relationships? Jacob thought he could buy his way back to Esau. Esau said, I don't really need your gifts. Maybe he took him at Jacob's insistence. How, how do you bring about restoration in relationships? Jeff touched on it last week when he said that in, I think, Matthew 25, if your neighbor has something against you, if you've offended somebody, leave your gift at the altar and go home and be reconciled and then come back and offer your gifts. What does that take to go to somebody and say, I'm, I'm sorry for what I did? And how do you keep it from being flippant? You've probably maybe experienced it. You go home and say, well, I'm sorry I did that. And they say, well, I can't forgive you yet. And then you get angry. What do you mean you can't forgive me? <laughs> it takes a couple of things to restore a relationship. One, it takes ownership and it takes humility. Jacob was quite a scoundrel when he was young. Lied to his father, deceived his brother. Whatever it took to get ahead, it seemed like Jacob would do it when he was young. But just before he came home, you find something in his prayer that you don't expect. In chapter 32, he says, in praying to God, I am unworthy of all of the loving kindness you've shown me. Somewhere along the way, Jacob realized who he was. Realized what he was. Have you ever wondered how the stories of the Bible, how could the writer of Genesis know that Jacob had prayed out in the wilderness when nobody was around? How could the writer of Genesis know what he, what he had prayed and what he thought and Unless Jacob told somebody, maybe told his children, and his children told their children, and it got passed down until Moses wrote it down. That that means that at some point Jacob had to sit down with somebody and say, I was quite a scoundrel in my youth. Here's, Here's what I did. And he had the humility to admit who he was. Sometimes when we go back to say, I'm sorry to somebody, the first thing we need to do is take ownership. I did this. Now, I know it hurt you, but I don't understand how deeply it hurt. Help me understand. And listen. Listen so you won't do it again and so you know what you're apologizing for. It, It takes humility. Not, I'm sorry, but I did it because, no, I did it. Remember the publican and Pharisee who came to pray? And the publican, uh, the Pharisee said, Oh, Lord, I, I, I praise you because I'm not like that guy over there praying. I go to church, I pray, I give my money. And the 
publican, the tax collector, could only say, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, which one of those men went out forgiven? It was the one who had the humility to admit who he was. And sometimes in relationship, the first thing we need to do is admit who we are. I, I did that, and I'm sorry. And if we're holding a grudge, there's a time to say, I need to let it go. Not that many to trust the person. Jesus didn't trust people, the Bible says, because he knew their hearts. If someone is going to drop your heart and step on it, you don't trust them sometimes. But it doesn't mean you can't love them and care about what happens to them and seek relationship in some way. Wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Let me close with one, one passage in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He talks about relationships. Paul was writing to a church that was totally fractured. People were suing each other. People were misusing communion. People were forming into groups and vying for power, prestige, position. And Paul writes and explains what spiritual gifts are. And he, he says, you know, guys... If, if I can speak in the tongues of men and angels, but don't have love, I'm, I'm nothing. If I can prophesy and, and just tell you everything's going to happen from God's calendar, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. And then he goes on in verse 13 to say this, Love is patient, love is kind, not jealous, love does not brag, it's not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The part of that verse that gives me trouble is love is not provoked. How do you not get upset when somebody does something? You get on Facebook and you express an opinion, and you all know what happens there. How do you not take things personally? But that's what he's saying. Love doesn't take stuff personally. Why? Because love knows it's not about me. It's about God. It's about the other person. It's about relationship. It's, God, how do you want to use me in that relationship? I need to speak truth, for sure. Maybe confrontation, like with my dad, is what needs to be done. Maybe somebody needs to confront me. But it's not about me. It's about growing in Christ. It's about reconciliation. Showing the world that we are believers in Christ by the way we get along with each other. The way we love each other. Maybe that's where you need to come home. It's just reconciliation with somebody where a relationship is fractured. Let's bow together and, and, and close in, in prayer. And let me ask you to take just a moment of silence and ask God to search your heart, see how you need to apply the text today, and then I'll close in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as I was studying the text this week, there are areas of, of my life where I need to come home. There's probably areas in a lot of our lives where change needs to happen from the inside out. And we're aware from your word that it's not something we can do ourselves. We can only trust in you and wholly depend upon you.
not bringing a part of ourselves, not bringing half of ourselves, but all of ourselves before you. It's been said, if you're not Lord of all, maybe you're not Lord at all in our lives. So, Father, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Teach us what we need to hear from your voice and your word. And, Father, may we, in whatever fashion it needs to happen this morning for each of us, may we come home. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.